If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and we are continuing the conversation today about pediatric workforce development. We'll discuss the role advocacy plays in current and future workforce development policy with Daniela Gratali, Nemours Associate Vice President of Federal Affairs, and Katie Boyer, Senior Advisor for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, both of whom are based at Nemours National Office in Washington, D.C. There, they work with Congress and federal agencies to advocate for legislation and policies to advance the mission of supporting the healthiest generations of children. Also joining us is Dr. Laura Chilcutt. Dr. Chilcutt is a graduate of the Nemours Children's Hospital Florida Residency Program, which is supported in part by the Federal Children's Hospital's Graduate Medical Education Program, CHGMA, which in turn was highlighted by Amy Knight of the Children's Hospital Association and Nemours President and CEO Dr. Larry Moss in our last podcast episode. Dr. Chilcott will talk about the importance of CHGME to her medical education and how she is bringing that education, that knowledge, and that care to the children and families of Central Florida and beyond, and why she decided to stay at Nemours to begin her career as a pediatrician. All three of our guests were part of a contingent of Nemours Associates, representatives of other freestanding pediatric institutions, and the Children's Hospital Association, who visited Capitol Hill recently to advocate for the continued federal support of CHGMA. Why is this kind of advocacy so important? Daniela Gratali explains. So we often say children aren't little adults. And that's because they're still developing and their needs are certainly unique from those of the adult population. So we want to make sure that we have providers who are specifically trained to care for them, especially children with medical complexity, for example. And as we definitely heard in detail in the prior podcast, we are experiencing systemic shortages of pediatric providers. And that's something we really need to address. And one of the tools to help address that is policy. Policy can help us to attract and to train and to retrain the pediatric workforce. So my team works hard with others in Washington, D.C. and with peer institutions across the nation to build really strong relationships with policymakers and with their staff. And the relationships really help us to effectively advocate for the policies that we need to help support the workforce in the short term and in the long term. Katie, I want to turn to you. I want to talk about the efforts of your office to support the continued funding of CHGME, which we talked about on the last podcast. I want to know more about what your office is doing in that realm. So for many years, we've partnered with the Children's Hospital Association and our peer institutions across the country to educate Congress on the purpose and the importance of CHGME. 
and importantly, to advocate for adequate funding. CHGME has been underfunded since its inception, and I know Dr. Moss talked about this on the previous episode as well. And that's especially true when it's compared to its companion program for adult hospitals. To address this inequity, the Children's Hospital Association each year recommends yearly increases to close that gap. So as good partners, we go to the Capitol Hill every year in February or March to meet with our delegation and ask for their support with an increased appropriation. Now, appropriations is the process Congress uses to allocate funding amounts to discrete programs funded by the federal government, like CHGME. Additionally, every five years, the program authorization expires, meaning that Congress must reauthorize the program and establish programmatic funding levels and program policies. So for key offices in our congressional delegation, we bring members of our executive cabinet, residency program experts, and residents themselves, like Dr. Chilcutt, to talk about the value of CHGME and the need for increased funding. Our team also conducts several meetings with congressional offices to educate and advocate for the program. Dr. Chilcutt, you provided legislators with a firsthand account of the benefits of CHGME as a participant in and a graduate of the program. Tell us what you told them about your experience as a resident here at Nemours. Sure. So this actually was a really good opportunity to highlight Nemours as well as our, our new residency program here in Orlando. I was actually part of the first class of residents. So we just graduated last June. And the thing that attracted me to, to Nemours really was the the hospital. It, it's 10 years old now, but it, it's still relatively new. It's still very much growing and innovating. And the residency leadership was very much looking to create a new and innovative program with, with different things that you may not find in other programs. And so that was, I think, really what attracted me to, to this hospital to, to stay for residency. And, and they really stood by that. So as an intern, I was working with one of our infectious disease doctors on like, how are we going to address things related to getting physical exams and vaccines to a lot of the kids in some of the underserved neighborhoods. And we really were talking about getting a mobile clinic started. And just kind of out of coincidence, as COVID started, we thought, well, that's it. We're going to have to wait until after COVID. And actually TD Bank came along and was interested in some different projects. They were talking about different things with, with other groups. I hadn't really found a good mix and ended up deciding that the mobile clinic was a good idea. And so we got $25,000 and started a mobile clinic when I was an intern. So that's what I spent my intern year doing. And aside from doing the call shifts and learning about being a pediatrician, I spent a lot of the, my free time it was post-call uh, and weekends, basically building a, a mobile clinic, which was a really great opportunity. And the leadership here was so supportive of that and understood the importance of one, creating a group, more pediatricians and more subspecialists here for Central Florida, but then also bringing that innovative spirit and how are we going to address these different problems that we know are in the community. After that, other residents within my class started things like Reach Out and Read. So we have our own residency clinic and every week each resident is there for at least a half day, not a whole day. And so now every kid who comes in for a well check also gets a, a new book to encourage reading, love of reading, bonding with the parents. And then in our last year, another resident created a, a class on newborn parenting. So new parents who come in who aren't sure what to really expect in those first few weeks, they're already overwhelmed by a new baby. Um, she created a whole curriculum for a class and that now she's graduated and additional residents now are taking over that and continue to, to run this class every couple of months for, for new parents. And they're now doing things like adding in the class in Spanish or doing a new train the trainer program so that programs like Department of Health and other community groups that want to be able to provide the same kind of training for the families that they serve 
we'll be able to to train them so they're equipped to do that in the community. So these were all the kind of the, the things that we talked about, just the the services that we can provide. Again, providing more physicians, which is really needed here in Central Florida, but also creating new and innovative ways to address healthcare and just keeping the whole family healthy. It sounds like the residents at Namours, both in Florida and in Delaware, are very involved community-wise, well beyond the interaction with the care teams that they have each and every day as they're learning how to practice medicine. Let me ask you, Dr. Chilcott, how integral are residents to those care teams here at Nemours and other pediatric institutions? Well, they're, they're absolutely essential. Yeah, I remember being here as a medical student rotating with, with the hospital service, and there were times where we, we had four, five, at most nine patients on a team. There, there were two different teams of, of physicians seeing the, the patients. And at that time, it was just there was a hospitalist with a couple of, of medical students. And of course, with COVID, our hospitals very much emptied out initially. But as the, the surge came and then as, as everyone has now gone back into schools and back out into the world and we have RSV and flu and COVID is still out there, kids are now getting sick and the hospitals have filled up. And so now we have these teams of, of residents with the attendings, with the medical students, and they are now capped at 14 to 16 patients per team. So we still have the two teams, but now we also overflow into a third team. So where we used to have a max of anywhere between 10, maybe 18 or 20 patients, now we're seeing 30 to 40 patients on a regular day and sometimes even going a little above that. In addition to the, the PICU and the other areas of the hospitals, they're also just really getting full. So the residents really are providing a, a backbone <laughs> to the hospital of being able to care for all these kids who are coming in now and, and needing that additional care. Danielle, I'm going to turn back to you and, and ask what kinds of policy changes need to happen on the federal level to help alleviate the shortage of pediatricians that we're seeing now? And how do we keep it from happening in the decades to follow? How can we alleviate the shortage and make sure it doesn't happen moving forward? So I think big picture, a lot of it really is thinking through how do we put in place the right incentives to create sustainability and to really support providers. So there are some programs that currently exist, like loan forgiveness programs. One of them, specific to pediatrics, is called the Pediatric Subspecialty Loan Repayment Program. And that can help defray the cost of academic training. So when you do go into fields like this, you can accrue serious amounts of debt. So it is important to have programs in place to help alleviate some of that financial burden. There are also workforce diversity programs out there, for example, a minority fellowship program. And we could expand that and also try to focus some of it on recruitment for the pediatric workforce. Some of the other programs that exist are the National Health Service Corps. And we could think about, are there new ways to leverage that, which really does help with recruitment in rural areas and urban settings? Can we leverage that to support pediatric recruitment? And of course, as Katie mentioned, CHGME is uh, critically important as well, specifically for physicians. So there are a number of incentives and policies that we really need Congress to think about and to enact over the next few years, because this isn't something that we're going to uh, kind of immediately alleviate. It will take time, and we really do have to um, invest the necessary resources to address the shortage for now and for the future. Yeah, turning that ship is going to take a lot of time. Katie and Daniela, uh, you've both made advocacy visits to help educate others about the Nemours residency programs. I want to know what you find most impressive about them, about the residents, about the programs. Katie. 
I had the distinct pleasure of advocating alongside Dr. Brian Alperson, who directs our residency program in the Delaware Valley, and a current fifth-year resident, Dr. Jessica Fernandez. What I found most impressive as I listened to them tell their story during our Capitol Hill visits was the quality of the programs we offer. I heard and I learned that training at a hospital like Nemours affords residents the opportunity to experience the full breadth of pediatric medicine. So they get to train in surgery. They get to see rare cases. They provide critical care in the emergency department and inpatient care for our sickest kids. They also get to train with doctors who save lives of very premature infants and doctors who care for young people with disabilities well into their 20s and beyond. Part of their training includes advocacy as well, which I was so impressed with. And that means that we are developing doctors who will both care for and advocate on behalf of their patients. It really is inspiring, and I felt very honored to be able to join them on Capitol Hill. Daniela, same question. What do you find impressive about our our residents and our residency programs? I think the quality of the the people is definitely um, top of my mind. When I think about this year's visit, the fact that we had five folks, three from Florida and two from the Delaware side, join us in D.C. to advocate for this program and to share so much passion, it was just really exciting. I think a highlight for me was certainly hearing from Dr. Chilcutt directly about her experiences, particularly with the mobile clinic. And then Dr. Fagan was able to add a perspective about what it took over the past few years to stand up our residency program in Florida. And it really is amazing to think about all the work that went into it, all the partnerships, and how many residents, not just the full-time ones who are pediatric residents, but other residents from across the state who cycle through our programs in in the Delaware Valley and in Florida. So it's just exciting to hear all that goes into it. And then we also had Kelly Register from our finance team share some of the financial intricacies of this program and, and how it's funded at the federal level. So I've really gained an appreciation for all that it takes to put a residency program into place and to sustain it over time. Through the years, though, I've just also been very impressed by the specific types of activities. So Dr. Chilcutt gave some examples from Florida. We've heard from the Delaware Valley folks in the past about the volunteerism. They volunteered at homeless shelters, at refugee clinics, at WIC programs. Some have gone abroad to volunteer. So there's this just strong spirit of volunteerism and a commitment to service among our residents that it's not only the amazing work that they do clinically inside the hospital, but this deep commitment that goes far beyond and extends out into the community that I've just been so impressed with through the years. Dr. Chilcutt, you have graduated from the residency program at Nemours. I believe Nemours Children's Hospital, Florida, you were part of the first class, and you decided to stay with Nemours to launch the next phase of your career as a physician. One of the things you've been working on, along with many here at Nemours, is providing technical support to other hospitals across the state of Florida. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. So one of the things that we do is technical support, technical assistance. So if if you are an hour away on the coast or the other direction in, in Lakeland, sometimes, I mean, even two hours south of us into South Florida, we have emergency rooms and physicians treating adults, but they also see children, right? There isn't a pediatric hospital in some of those areas. When children come into those emergency rooms, they still need the same treatment. So we provide the support where the child comes in and they're really sick and they either need escalation of care 
and they don't have anything available there or the physician just isn't quite sure what to do, they will often call us and say, I've tried this, this, and this. I'm not sure what else to do. And we were the ones who really helped them to, to walk through that. Give you a, a good example of, of where the technical assistance that we're providing really does make a difference. As Daniela said, children aren't just small adults, right? Physiologically, they, they are different and the training for treating them is different. And that's why it's so important that we have this, this training program, this residency program here in pediatrics in Central Florida. But we need to have that, that backbone of true pediatric training, which is different from training that you get for treating adults. So one of the good examples I had, I was actually speaking with the, the chief of our pediatric ICU a few days ago, and she was talking about a case where a physician from an adult ED out in the community called, and she called a little bit frantic. There was a, a 10-month-old boy had come in. He had no past medical history, no issues with, with the birth or delivery. Just It was a healthy kid who had come in, hadn't really even been that sick, but was coming with trouble breathing. And he was clearly was working hard. They had put oxygen on him. They did an x-ray. Everything looked okay. They gave him some steroids, some albuterol, thinking maybe this was some kind of uh, reactive airway, which is kind of a precursor to asthma, trying to figure out what is wrong with this child. And nothing they were doing was helping. So they called a little bit nervous to our, our ICU, saying, what else can we do? We need to send this child to you, but we're not sure what's going on. We really can't get him stable. He's needing a lot of oxygen, not making a difference. And so the ICU doctors, I mean, we see this a lot. They kind of talked them through everything that they checked. Like, did you do the oxygen? They said, yes, we did that. Did you do the steroids, the albuterol? Yep, that's all done. And they said, well, why don't you get some labs? They get some basic lab looking for infection, but also make sure you get a, a glucose. So they're like, okay, we'll call you back. So they, they get off the phone. They go, they do that. A few minutes later, they call back. And now the physician's actually a little more nervous. She's like, the glucose is 600, which immediately is a diagnosis of, of diabetes, which, which is, is strange in a 10-month-old baby, but it's not unheard of in something that has pediatric physicians, we, we do see that. In adult physicians, a glucose of, of 600 means it's a major diabetes diagnosis, but it also is something that they are not used to seeing in children, especially someone like that's under a year old. So then they get all nervous. We, we didn't treat this. What, what do we do? Because even diabetes is treated differently in a child than it is for an adult. In an adult, you would just start giving insulin to bring that glucose down, but that's something that could actually be very dangerous for a small child. So the physician kind of walked her through this whole process. It's okay, relax. You're going to treat with a lot of fluids. You're going to just slowly bring this down. Eventually, we gave her, like, here's how you treat with, with the insulin over time. So they started working on that. And then over time, the glucose starts to come down. The breathing, of course, improves. So the breathing is actually a, a secondary result of the high glucose and the diabetes. It's not actually a respiratory issue. So when they were really looking for infectious cause, looking for a pneumonia, or asthma, this was actually something that was a result of the super high glucose and this new diabetes diagnosis. So the physician came back and was, was so grateful for, for the help. And this isn't something that we have extra physicians for or have extra like physicians just doing this. This is just kind of part of the day while we're here taking care of the kids here. We get these kinds of calls and we do it because it's just such an important thing to do because we know that pediatrics is different than that adult medicine. And it's something that we see kind of every day within our hospital service, the PICU, our NICU. We're getting these calls from all over the place, and it really is an important part of what we're doing to either help people to treat the patients, to keep them where they are so that they don't have to come to our hospital here and, and drive potentially one or two hours away, and then the families are far away from their families, they're far away from their support systems, they have to find a way to get home when the child is better. So sometimes by doing this, it allows us to help them to treat the children where they are in their community and then not have to come here to us. When they are really sick, they sometimes do have to come here, and we then can give them that specialty support. But uh, I think this is a really good example of kind of what that means for a family, for us being able to provide that support when the, the child is still 
out in the community hour, two hours from us and not have to necessarily come here in the end. It sounds like, you know, your team is going well beyond medicine, helping hospitals and children across the entirety of the state of Florida. And I understand that you also have stayed at Nemours because there is this opportunity to have community impact. Similarly, with other projects that you're working on, you mentioned the mobile clinic. Tell us about your community work, Dr. Chilka. So one of the good examples that we're working on are things like medical legal partnership. It was something that I originally started working on with a faculty member here as a medical student. Uh, we got some of the infrastructure set up. And now we're finally starting to, I think, make some headway on finding some some real funding to get that integrated into the hospital so that when patients come in and there's a, a legal issue, things like, like guardianship, a child who may have turned 18 but isn't actually capable of making decisions themselves, but the parents never went through that process of getting guardianship and now they're stuck in the hospital and no one can consent to procedures because for some reason the, the child who's now legally an adult isn't capable of doing it, but the parent also isn't legally allowed to do it. So things like having integrated legal aid in the system will help to make sure that we um, are treating kids more efficiently, not wasting resources, but also wasting the child's time or preventing care that they need because they're sitting in the hospital waiting for their legal rights to be addressed. Other things that we're adding to there are things like community health workers. So not everything needs an attorney, right? Some things you come into the hospital and, and it may just be a simple thing like someone doesn't have access to fresh food and fresh produce because they can't afford it. That's not necessarily a legal issue. That could be something as simple as filling out a WIC form or getting SPAP benefits. And so having community health workers to kind of bridge that gap and help to make sure that when we identify resources for a family, we can make sure that they really get to those. So when a patient is discharged from the hospital, that community health worker could go to their home and say, what do you need now that you're out of the hospital? Do you have follow-up appointments that you need help getting to? Do you need medications? that we need to make sure that you get so that you don't end up back in the hospital. So things like the community health workers, medical legal partnership, they're all programs that I think if we integrate these all together, it creates a really good solid foundation of supporting the families, not just the children, right? The children, they can be well, we can treat them with all the medications that we want, but if the family has an issue of not being able to provide enough food or safe housing, that child's still not going to be wholly treated. So providing all these different resources, really wrapping around the child and the family within the community, I think is, is where we want to go. And so my schedule, the way I'm built out with this one day a week of clinical and the rest of my time dedicated to community work, I think is really helpful and it really allows us to move forward this mission of Well Beyond Medicine. Dr. Laura Chilcutt is a pediatrician with Nemours Children's Health and a graduate of the Nemours Children's Hospital Florida Residency Program, which is supported in part by CHGMA. She was joined in conversation by Daniela Gratali, Nemours Associate Vice President of Federal Affairs, and Katie Boyer, Senior Advisor for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs. As she mentioned, Dr. Chilcutt is a guiding force behind the establishment of the Nemours Mobile Clinic that travels to various locations to provide health care services to underinsured and uninsured children in greater Orlando. We'll hear the details on that in our next podcast episode. The Nemours Podcast is excited to bring you stories and information just like this, and we'd love to hear from you about what you'd like to hear on the podcast. Email us at podcast at That's podcast at 
Many thanks to the production team this week, Rachel Salas silverman Cheryl Mon, and Che Parker. The podcast is found on Nemours Net, the Nemours Now app, and your favorite podcast app, along with your smart speaker. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. I'm Carol Vassar, and on behalf of Dr. Laura Chilcutt, Daniela Gratali, and Katie Boyer, we thank you for listening.